Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand again. Come on. Exciting to be here in God's presence, get to worship Him. Uh, I'm always expecting to see what God's going to do. So I'm hoping that He's going to show up in a mighty way this morning, as He has already, and continue to fill us, fill us with His presence. Um, we are a church that loves the Lord. I mean, we love Jesus. We celebrate Jesus. He's the hero of the church, the founder of the church. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith, and He is the reason we celebrate. We come together to worship Jesus. And so I want to thank you guys for coming. If you are new, welcome. If you don't know me, my name is Marco. I do have a funny accent. It's actually a normal accent. You all have a funny accent. Uh, I'm the only one that sounds normal here, right? Hallelujah. Amen. 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 That's right. Okay. Anyway, just two quick announcements. Two weeks from now is Father's Day. Did you guys all remember that, right? It's Father's Day. Come on, man. Let's give the men a cheer here. When we say Mother's Day, everyone gets excited. It's Father's Day. Hallelujah, man. Come on. It's going to be an awesome time. Uh, we have Leo and Christine Nakotra coming all the way from Sydney, Australia. They're going to be here with us on Sunday. Uh, they are an amazing couple. They lead an amazing church in Sydney. Uh, and they're going to be coming to bless us on Father's Day. And if you are a father here, there's more stuff in store for you too, because you're also going to get a gift, one that uh, we hope will bless you for a very long time. Uh, and in addition to that, there's going to be food. I made the mistake of saying there's going to be barbecue this morning. Uh, apparently there might not be. So we don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be pretty awesome. I mean, you could get barbecue, but you might not. And if you don't, it's okay, right? Because we're all grateful for what we do get. Hallelujah. Amen. But maybe there's barbecue. I don't know. I'm going to get into lots of trouble again. Anyway, I promised I wouldn't say that, but I did. Anyway, next slide, Dino. Uh, in August, we had this morning with us Brian and Julie Barnett. Sorry, there's also baptisms on that Sunday. We skipped through that one. But there are baptisms that Sunday. So if you want to be baptized, haven't been baptized, and need to be baptized to honor God's commandment, it's not a salvation issue, it's an obedience thing, please come chat to me, Catherine, one of the deacons, one of the elders, uh, and just get more information. We'd love to get you on the list. Okay, last announcement. In August, this morning, we had uh, Brian and Julie Barnett with us. They are close friends of ours. Uh, we, we consider them family. But also, they are a part of many different sort of kingdom initiatives. One of them in particular is Streams Ministries. Last year we hosted a con conference with Streams Ministries with uh, uh, John Thomas and Brian. They came over here and they taught us how to hear God for ourselves. It was a two-day sort of uh, conference. We got to understand a little bit about prophecy. How do we hear from God clearly? How do we make sure that what God is saying to us is from the Lord? And how do we verify prophecy as well? So it's a lot of integrity in this. They're coming back again and they're going to be hosting two days with us again on Friday the 5th of August and Saturday the 6th, and this year's theme is going to be how do we respond to what God is saying? And so the one thing is God speaks, but then what do we do with what, with what God says? How do we go and encourage people? How do we speak to people? What do we do? And how do we do that with integrity before the Lord? And so I want to encourage you to please mark this in your calendar. It's going to be an awesome time. And then on Sunday, we have Artie Kendall back with us again. If you remember Artie, uh, probably, in my opinion, one of the greatest theologians alive today, uh, at least in my opinion, as I said, he will be with us. He'll be teaching on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. because by that point we'll be in our new venue. I'm speaking prophetically here. And so we'll have one service on the Sunday. Where's Mike Marty? He's not here because he, there he is. He's like, mm, I'm not sure. We'll be in there by then, Mike. And then he's also going to come back that afternoon and teach two more times on different messages, different things. And so if you've never heard Artie Kendall, I'd encourage you to go look him up online, go listen to some of his uh, preachers or go buy one of his books. He's got like a thousand of them out there but really an amazing man, and we're so honored that he would come to our little church here in Texas and invest so much time with us. So please, put that in your calendar. It's going to be awesome. Great. Now we can get back to this morning. 
If you are new, we started a series in the book of Revelation at the beginning of this year, and we've been slowly making our way through this book. We say slowly because we've been quite intentional about how we get there. We want to make sure we cover everything that we can possibly glean from this book, and we're missing a lot. Let me just tell you, because if we wanted to do it properly, it would take us a really, 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 really long time, but we're trying to do the best we can. This morning, however, is our final installment in our second section. So we've been looking at the seven seals of Revelation. This morning is the final installment in that section, at which point we're going to pause for the summer. We're going to be looking at some other stuff. And then at the end of summer, we'll come back and we're going to go back into Revelation and look at the third major section in the book, and that's the seven trumpets. So a little bit about the book of Revelation, if, in case you haven't heard this. I know some of you have. But the truth is the book of Revelation does cover some events that are pretty hard for us to hear. Sometimes um, we don't want to hear them. But... Here's the deal. The book of Revelation has been added to Scripture because God wants us to read it. And actually, this book is not a book about doom and gloom or fear. This is actually a book about hope. It's probably one of the most hopeful books in all of the Bible. In fact, they're all hopeful because anything that God writes is hopeful. But in my opinion, this book should give us in the seasons and in the times that we're living in greater hope. I say that because underlying all of these events that we read throughout the book, whether they've happened, whether they are still going to happen, or whether they might be happening right now, is an underlying message. And that underlying message that has been written throughout this book is that God has got us. He's got this. And when I say this, the plan of all creation, the plan of redemption, he's got you and I this morning. And the reason we celebrate Jesus is because he's on the throne. This book is telling us throughout it that Jesus is on the throne. And because he's on the throne, we are more than conquerors. And so no matter what's going on out there, no matter what's going on inside your heart, understand this, that your identity at the cross is what matters. And you are more than conquerors because Christ Jesus is your Lord. I do want to say, however, that while that is true, the fact is we are still in a process of conquering. And so here's the deal. Jesus in the first horse of the first seal of this section, comes out on this white horse and he's leading the charge. He's wearing a white robe, he's got the crown on, and what he's doing is releasing the gospel across all the world. This is part of God's plan for redemption, right? That people would know the truth and they would be saved. But Jesus conquered, but he's conquering still, in the sense that the gospel has not finished going where it needs to go. Jesus chooses to partner with us as humanity to do that. And while we are going through that process of getting this gospel to the nations and to the world, there is this reality that we're going through some labor pains, some hardships, some sufferings. The red horse of Revelation comes following right after the white horse, and it speaks about the persecution that the church will face for preaching the gospel. Whether that's physical suffering in the form of death or physical suffering in other ways, we will suffer for preaching the gospel. In fact, if you have preached the gospel, you'll know this. The enemy comes at us all the time. After the red horse came the black horse. There's also this reality that sometimes, as believers, we're excluded from some of the systems of the world because we've chosen to stand for our king and not for that kingdom. And so there's a reality to suffering in other areas too. And then, of course, the last horse of those first four seals was the pale horse. They told us that it's not just the church that's going to suffer as a result of the gospel, but the whole world is going to suffer. In fact, this world, friends, as we look at it today, is, in a, is on a continuous downward spiral. We need to expect that there will be more wars because the Bible tells us so. We need to expect that following wars will be famine, rising inflation, high gas prices, other issues in this world. There will be pestilence, diseases that will follow, and there will be natural disasters, friends. These are things that, not, that should not surprise or even rattle the church. 
This has been written to us so that we would understand that in the midst of all of these things that are coming against us, some of them the most devastating things that people will ever have to go through, God is still on the throne. And his plan is being made perfect through what Jesus is doing as he rides out and brings this gospel to the nations. And that leads us to this morning. One of the most encouraging passages of all scripture. Last week or last session, we looked at two things, seals five and six. We heard about how the martyr's blood cries out before the Lord and how they will receive vindication one day for all of the suffering that they've been through, be it from loss of life or from laying down their lives. And then we heard in seal six, Armageddon, right? That crazy passage of scripture when the whole world seems to be falling in on itself. It literally is. Creation is collapsing because the God of the universe has taken his hands off. And as much as the martyrs are going to be vindicated, guess what? We as the church will be vindicated on that day because of all the persecution we face. God will come back and everyone will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's not something we take joy in and saying, oh, yeah, I'll know one day. It's something that should bother us. We need to go and tell the world that there is a day coming where they will know definitively that Jesus is Lord. And it's too late then to make the decision to follow him. But this morning, I want to encourage us with probably one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, reminding us that that day is not directed at the church. It's not directed at the believers in this world. It's directed at an unbelieving world. So our first point for this morning is this. God's people are guaranteed protection by God himself. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to read from verse 1 this morning. Let me pray first before I get there. Father, submit myself to you today and I pray Holy Spirit that you would fill me that you would anoint me and that you would put a God over my mouth that I would not say anything Lord that you don't want me to say I pray Holy Spirit that you would speak clearly to all of us this morning and that you would bring an impartation of revelation to us today I pray that you would be glorified today Jesus you are the only thing that is worthy to be glorified and so I pray you would be on your throne as you are and we would be lifting you higher and higher as we magnify your name today in Jesus name Amen. So let me just set this up quickly before we get to this passage of Scripture. Between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there's this passage of time that happens, and there's this part of this vision that follows seal number six. John gets given another picture or another aspect of this vision. And I want to say this to you this morning, that my belief is that this part of what John is seeing is not happening in chronological order. In other words, seal six, we read about the earth collapsing in on itself. It's all going to be destroyed. What I believe John is seeing now is something that actually happens before the destruction of the world. And I believe that because it confirms what I see in Scripture, and it also confirms that we are not the object of the wrath of the Lamb. So Revelation 7 verse 1 says this, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against the tree. The reason why I believe this is happening before Revelation 6, or sorry, before the seal 6 in Revelation chapter 6, is because right now what we see is destruction has not been released yet on the earth. And so John's been taken into this vision and he's looking at it from another perspective. The book of Revelation is a prophetic revelation of God's plan in creation and in redemption. John's seeing things from a different perspective. And what's clear is that these angels are commanded by God to hold back on releasing this judgment, this terrible judgment we read about. And so the question is, why are they holding it back? 7 verse 2 continues, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God 
on their foreheads. Destruction has been withheld until God's people could be protected. I want to say to you something important. This protection that comes in the form of this seal is not protection against the suffering of the labor pains. This is the protection that we are provided from the devastating effects of the day of the Lord. The scriptures speak about seals in three main ways. Firstly, it speaks about as a protection. Seals are a protection against tampering. When Jesus was crucified in Matthew chapter 27, verse 66, the Roman authorities came and put a seal on Jesus' tomb because they didn't want anyone messing up with it or messing it up or getting in there. Revelations, uh, this entire section, the, the seals of Revelation are a great example of those seals, of what a seal does. The seals made sure that that scroll, which contained God's plans and purposes for the entire world and his plan for redemption, could not be tampered with. In fact, it could only be opened by someone who was worthy, and that is Jesus. Thank goodness he opened them, because now God's plan is underway. The second way seals are described in Scripture is as a mark of ownership. Solomon, Song of Solomon 8 verse 6 says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. We are God's property. If you go to the DMV, I have a title here. I'm not going to use it now, but there it is. You have a title. You look on the title. It tells you who owns that vehicle. We have been sealed by God because he takes ownership of us. The last way seals are described is to authenticate authority. King Xerxes in Esther chapter 3 writes this edict out to all of the nations and the different regions of his dominion. And this horrible guy Haman has convinced him to kill all the Jewish people. And so he writes this letter to all the four corners of his different empire. And he says that you're going to kill all the Jews. In fact, Xerxes doesn't actually write the letter. Haman does. But what ends up happening is Xerxes puts his seal on the letter. And so when that letter is received by the people, what they understand is it doesn't actually matter who wrote the letter. What matters is whose seal is on it. Under which authority has this letter been written? We sit under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every bit of authority we have comes from him. But what's powerful about these verses and about being sealed is it's telling us in no uncertain terms that before the wrath of the Lamb falls on this earth, before destruction comes, the people of God will receive the mark of safety and ownership. We are safe. We are owned and we will be protected from what's coming. What's more, no one and nothing can tamper with your salvation, friends. I don't know where you come from in terms of your faith, what you've believed, but I truly believe this with all of my heart that once you are saved, you are saved, friends. You have been sealed. In fact, we'll read this a little bit later. There is a seal we receive on the day of our salvation that no one can take away from you. And we have to have assurance of that. Now, you might be wondering, what does this seal say? We know it's on our foreheads, our foreheads. How do you say it, Rita? Foreheads. Foreheads. But what does it say? In Revelation 14, we encounter this same group of people. This time, it tells us what that seal says. The name of the Lamb and the name of the Father are written on that seal. And that seal is communicating an important message to all the agencies of of destruction and to the enemy and his minions. And that simply says this. Do not touch these people because they are my possession. And that should give us hope. And that leads us to our next point, and that is that God's people have been chosen. Revelation 7, 4, and I heard, and this is important, I want you to take note of that word. John heard this. He doesn't see it. He hears this. Somebody's reading to him a list of all the people that are saved, and I've heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. Notice Judah is first 
It's never first normally, but now it's first because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. I want to pause here for a second because depending on what your view of end time theology might be and what your view is of the end times, we might get to a point where we vary on the interpretation of what this number truly means. And I want to again put this out there. I'm not sure to fight with anyone. One day we will all know how it all ends up. And it's okay if you have an opinion. It's okay if you believe a different view of the end times to I do as long as we can agree on the fundamentals of our faith. But I'm going to tell you what options exist out there. One view is that this 144,000 is speaking about Jews that were saved at the destruction of the first temple, AD 70, when Rome came in and conquered the temple. Some people believe that the 144,000 represent a remnant of those Jews. Other people believe that the 144,000 mentioned here represent Jews that will be saved during the seven-year tribulation. If you believe in the rapture, that's generally something that you might hold to. Some other people believe that the first 144,000 mentioned in the book of Revelation here in chapter 7 speak of Jewish people, and the next 144,000 that you'll read in Revelation chapter 14 speaks of Christians. And then, of course, we've got the way out the ideas. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that exactly 144,000 faithful Jehovah's Witness Christians born, I mean, from Pentecost until the modern day today are going to be given an exclusive right to rule and reign with Christ as king priests for a thousand years. They will be part of this exclusive club that will become immortal with Christ, and they'll reign from the spiritual realm, while the rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses will have the opportunity to live on the new heaven and the new earth. Opportunity, not guarantee. Now, while I have some fundamental issues with that one in particular, there is a challenge for me that, I think, and again, I'm speaking from my own interpretation here, that these different variations create. One of the main ones is that there seems to be this exclusive club within the group of believers. In other words, it's not about being lost or saved anymore. It's about being saved, saved. It's by being super saved. Being the pinnacle of salvation. And my problem with that, and I'm speaking as plainly and honestly as I can, is I will not know ever if I've ever made it into that select group. And so I choose to interpret this as follows. And that's not just me, it's many other theologians in the world. I choose to believe and I choose to interpret it that the 144,000, like all the other numbers in Revelation, is not meant to be read literally. I believe it's a symbolic number. We've covered a lot of numbers in the book of Revelation, lots of different numbers. And you remember, each of them has a meaning. For example, number 12 always represents the church. 12 uh, tribes, 12 apostles, put them together. You get the 24 elders seated around the throne, representing the entirety of God's church. The number four, as I said earlier, I don't know if I said it earlier, you've got the four angels or the four winds on the four corners of the earth represents creation. The number six represents man or mankind. Day six, man was created. If you add 666 together, you're not going to burn in hell. Don't worry, you'll be fine. You put those three numbers together, it represents mankind at its absolute worst. And that's why it's the mark of the beast. 
And then, of course, you've got the number seven. It comes up everywhere in the book of Revelation. Seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Many other sevens that you'll hear about. And, of course, 777 being the number of God. Why? Because the number seven represents completeness. It rep- represents God's perfect ability to complete things. Seven days in a week, seven days of creation. God is perfect in, him- in himself. And that's why the number that we get given is 777. And so in saying all of that and considering that God gave us this book of Revelation. Believe it or not, he didn't give us this book so we could all run out of here in tears, screaming and shouting, saying, oh, we don't understand, we don't understand. He gave this book not so we could become fantastical mathematicians. He gave us this book to inspire us, not to confuse us. And so when we read the book of Revelations, don't get confused, don't get scared, don't get worried. He gave us this book to encourage us. And I believe this number, 144,000, represents the church. The global church of Jesus Christ. How do we get there? Twelve tribes, twelve apostles, old covenant, new covenant, added together. In fact, times by each other. And the three zeros at the end signify the multitudes of God's people. It's a representation of the entirety of all of us. From the moment we get saved, I believe we are counted in that number. And throughout Scripture, or in this passage in particular, but generally throughout Scripture, the church is always represented in two ways. The first way that the, in this passage the church is represented is as an army. We are God's army. When the nation of Israel went out to war, it would often tell you, if you read the Old Testament, the order of which the nation marched out. This tribe and this tribe and this tribe plus this tribe and this so many from this tribe and so many from this tribe and so many from this tribe went and battled whatever enemy it is. The picture here is that we are part of God's army. Every single one of us in this room, we are called to be the army of God, which means if we're an army, we have a mission, which means if we have a mission, we have to fulfill that mission on this earth. We know the gospel is going out there, and it's our job as God's army to take the message to the world. We don't come here on a Sunday morning so we can be religious, so we can tick the box and say, I've been to church this week, God loves me. We come here this morning so we can be equipped, re-energized, so we can be sent out onto the battlefield. And if you think about it, the church is in this world and it is confronted by the realities of living in a broken world. We are confronted, we are vulnerable, sometimes we are persecuted, most times some of us will be suffering for our faith. Yet, despite all of those things, as the army of God, what we have is the confidence that we have been sealed. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. He says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Yes, we'll be protected in the end. But guess what? You've been sealed today already. Not only has God given us his seal of protection, his seal of anti-tampering, the seal of authority, but he's also given us the seal of his presence, friends. The moment we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. We have the manifest presence of God with us. And so when you go out there as the army, you go out there not in your own strength, nor in your own power, but in the power of the Lord. And so if you are lacking courage, ask God for more courage. You have the creator God of the universe living inside of you. And we can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. And that raises a question. One that is, Confused lots of people for many years. How do we know that we're part of this 144,000? How do we know that we truly are sealed? And so let me give you some things that are indicators. And I'm asking you a question now. Do you love Jesus? If you love Jesus, raise your hand. Hallelujah. Then you're sealed, right? Then you're sealed. 
Do you trust Jesus? Raise your hand. Amen. Then you're sealed. Do you find a desire to want to be with the people of God? Nobody raises their hand. Huh. Don't worry. That's a bit of a loose one here this morning because, I mean, sometimes I get that we irritate each other, so it's okay. But we are all human beings, yeah? But do you have a desire to want to be with other people who share your faith? Do you want to celebrate Jesus with other people? Then you'll probably be part of the 144,000. In fact, you're sealed. Does God's word exert an ever-increasing magnetic pull on your life? In other words, and I'm not saying this uh, for people that are just born again, because you might be born again and you think, man, this is the most confusing book I've ever seen. But when you start reading it, all of a sudden you start to realize, I want more of it, and I want more of it. And so this magnetic pull grows as you mature in your faith. You want more of God. If that's happening to you and you're realizing that, you're sealed. If your old habits, your old sins, your old hang-ups bother you, you're sealed. In fact, let me tell you this. If you, like me, struggle to live in this world, to avoid temptation, and you struggle with the pull that the world has on us, then you're 100% sealed. Let me tell you why. Because it's only through the Holy Spirit that we can receive conviction of our sins. If your sin doesn't bother you, if you're not worried about your sin, if it doesn't affect you, or you are, not even, you are completely oblivious to your sin, or maybe you think that living in this world is the best thing you ever could do, and there's nothing else after this, or you're not living for eternity, I want to say this to you. Maybe the right question to ask is not whether I'm sealed, but really, do I know Jesus? Because here's the deal, and I'm not here to condemn anyone. You have to understand that the conviction of the Holy Spirit gives us a realization that we don't want to be the old man anymore. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, there is an opportunity to know him. The door is open. It's not an exclusive club. We're not having to enter this place and become super saved. Everybody is welcome at the foot of the cross. We've just got to make the decision. The second way the church is presented throughout Scripture is triumphant. We're not just an army who's battling and waging a war out there. And we're not just sealed by God with his presence and his power. But if there's one message you can take out of the book of Revelation, it's this. We win. We win. Jesus wins. That's the simple message. Jeremy told me that once. The commentary in Revelation. We win. That's how easy it is. But for real, we are a triumphant church. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. What's interesting is John heard about these people. He heard about the numbers of these people, and now he sees these people. It's the same group of people, friends. And what you'll notice is it's not 144,000 people. It's a lot more. It's a multitude that the text says no one could number. And what's more is it's a united people. No rich, no poor, no black, no white, no Democrat or Republican, no young, no old, no division in the kingdom of God. Everybody is equal at the foot of the cross. And that tells me, friends, if we are part of that number, the one thing we should be striving for to represent the king in the kingdom on this earth is unity. You want to deal with racial division in this country? Point people to Jesus. You want to deal with political division in this country? Point people to Jesus. You want to deal with any division you have? Go back to Jesus. That's the call. That's the mission. That's the mandate that we carry. The Bible says that 
We need to be a, a sweet smelling fragrance to the Lord. Can we be a church that represents the unity of the kingdom? This number that is so diverse is the one and only church of Jesus Christ, united at the foot of the cross. cross. And if you this morning are a follower of Christ, I want you to know that you are a part of it. The third point is that God's people are distinct. These next few verses are going to give us some insight about these people in heaven. Firstly, it tells us that these people are saved. And you all say, we know that. But let me explain that a little bit more. It says, clothed in white robes, with palm branches, 7 verse 9, in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God, and he has given it to us. The white robes that we receive are the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. The palm fronds that we will wave remind us of Palm Sunday. Unfortunately, on Palm Sunday, the nation of Israel got it horribly wrong. They shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. The son of David has returned. However, what they were doing is creating a Messiah in their own image. They wanted Jesus to be who they wanted him to be. But in heaven, we will raise those palm palms and we will worship God for who he is. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And there will be no doubt about it, friends. The second thing that these people are is worshipers. Maybe you don't like to worship. Maybe that's the... The part of the meeting that you need to go through. I want to tell you every part of the meeting from the beginning to the end is worship. Everything. Singing is not worship. It's one expression of worship. Being under God's word is worship. Praying is worship. Talking to God is worship. In fact, our lives are meant to be lived worshiping God in every second of every day. Driving your car is worship. Going to work is worship. What you do in the marketplace is worship. Your power and your impact and your influence on the people around you every day should be seen through your worship. But if you don't like worship, you're going to have to learn how to worship because we're all worshipers. Verse 11 says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elder and the, four li- and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This multitude, friends, us, our collective, the collective church, add all of our praises to the praises that have been going on in heaven forever. Remember, in Revelation chapter 4, when we first saw this throne room of God, there's the 24 elders around the throne, the four living beings with the weird eyes. Then there's the multitudes of angels that declare in one voice, holy, holy, holy is he, the king of kings. Well, guess what? We, as God's saints, now join in on that chorus. We start to worship God. We start to adore Him. We start to love Him. Every part of God's creation will worship Him. You notice in this text, every part of the throne room is represented. The elders represent the church. The living beings represent creation. The saints, the redeemed, all of us together in unity shouting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. The third thing we see about these people is these are all people, all people who have experienced suffering. Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me. So John is in this vision and one of the elders, which are angels, addresses him, big angels, like, I don't know, it's like power angels. Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. Imagine saying to an angel, you know, buddy, why are you asking me? You know, like you've been here for longer than I have. And he said to me, 
These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That word tribulation is the Greek word thlipsis. I say it to you this morning because it's the same word that Jesus uses in John 16 verse 33 where he says, in this world, you will have trouble. Thlipsis, hardship, suffering, persecution, difficulties. But then Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What this text tells me is that all of us, when we go to heaven and we stand before God, will have come through suffering of our own. Nobody will be excluded from that. We will all have been through something. Maybe you're here this morning and you're suffering right now. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you are dealing with relational issues. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a financial issue. I don't know what it is. But if you're suffering this morning, I want you to take heart. Because guess what? There will come a day when Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 come definitively true. When Paul said, all things will work together for our good. I can tell you, when you're standing before God, before the throne, you will say, everything that I've been through on this earth, all the suffering I've been through, all the hardship I've been through is 100% worth it. Why? Because you are worthy, God. In fact, I want to say this to you. The one regret we might have, and I'm not going to ask you to build a theology around this because this is my personal opinion. But the one regret we may have when we get to heaven is we could have suffered more. We could have put ourselves out there more. We should have done more. And I say that to you because of this simple fact. We are given on this earth 70 odd years. Some get more, some get less. That is the only time in all of eternity we will ever face hardship. From that point onwards, when we're in God's presence, you will never suffer again. Now, please don't go look for suffering. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is put yourself out there. Put yourself out there for the king and the kingdom. And if suffering comes, suffer well. Lastly, these are people who have been washed and made white their robes. Revelation 7:14. they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Interesting, very interesting statement here that gets put out there there's two things that are happening one they have been washed and what that signifies is the moment that we come to salvation jesus cleanses us of the stain of our sin and i want to tell you there are so many believers walking around today living in the stain of their sin in the shame of their past sins in the guilt of their past sins if that's you this morning i want to tell you you have been washed and your stains have been removed by the blood of the lamb Stop holding on to that stuff. You need to release it, friends. Jesus has cleansed you. You are a new creation. That's your identity. You're a son in the kingdom, a daughter in the kingdom. You are not a sinner. You're a redeemed child of God. And then it says the robes are continuously washed. What does that speak to? Jesus takes the stain away. But then guess what? Once we're saved, we become more like Jesus. It's called sanctification, not salvation. We get that at the cross. But sanctification says that as I live my life out, as I mature in my faith, I'm going to look more like the Savior who died for me. And guess what? The end state that we die in versus the first state we were found in has to be different. But I want to say this to you, that this is not a works-based theology. It's got nothing to do with how many times you come to church. It's got nothing to do with how much you read the Bible. It's got nothing to do with your religion. It's got nothing to do with your self-righteousness. In fact, it's got nothing to do with you. You know why? Because both being washed and being made white is, is of the blood of the Lamb. Jesus and the Holy Spirit give us the power to be sanctified, not our good works. And so we go on our knees before the Lord. We say, Lord, give me the strength to do today what I could not do yesterday. And help me to stop living in the shame of my past and release for me a destiny that you've called me to live. Last point. Those that have been washed and made white their robes will be rewarded. 
Verse 15 says this, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And, he's, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's where I want to be. We don't know exactly what this is going to be like, but if we just take this description, let me tell you some interesting things. We will be closer to God than we've ever been. Now you say, well, that's obvious. We'll be in heaven, sure. But have you ever felt that moment when you feel like God is far away from you? Where you're not hearing from him? Never going to happen again, ever. It tells us that we'll be protected. There will never be a moment in your life where you will ever be fearful again, not for yourself or for anybody else. I don't know how relationships work in heaven, but you won't be fearful. Just take that. He will be protecting you under his shelter. You'll be totally satisfied. You'll neither hunger nor thirst. Can you imagine being totally satisfied? I don't know if I've ever lived in a moment where I'm totally satisfied. There are moments where you have these glimpses. Maybe you're on the beach in Bora Bora. I've never been there, but maybe it's, it's really cool. So you're in Bora Bora, you have this moment, wow, look at that sunset, wow, it's that feeling, oh my gosh, this is amazing, but then boom, it's gone, because that night you go and you fight with your wife. We never fight, by the way. I'm just saying, like, it could happen, right? And all of a sudden, that satisfaction is gone. We'll be totally satisfied forevermore. It says we'll be totally comfortable. The sun will not burn you, no more sunscreen. The scorching heat will not affect you. Guess what? This is probably my favorite part, because I have a battle in, in the church office every day with people like Tim. I don't like the AC and Miss Ashley. I like the AC 76. You know what I mean? These guys that come in there put on 71 degrees. I'm like, I'm freezing here. Okay, it's summertime. I don't need to be freezing. But here's the deal. In heaven, the AC is never too hot and it's never too cold. It's just right. Hallelujah. Total comfort. And then it says that we will be filled with more of God than we could ever imagine. The great shepherd, Jesus Christ, will lead us to streams of living water. Not once, but for the rest of eternity. Now think about that. Right now on this earth, we get filled with the Holy Spirit. Our job is to continuously be filled. Why? Because we leak. So we lose capacity because we're giving it away or people are sucking it out of us or whatever the case is. So we ask God for more every day. In this case, the anointing will grow and grow and grow and grow and never stop growing until the end of times, which will never ever happen. So I don't even know what that looks like. But the, 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 the power here is that we will become so anointed in the presence of God, we get to live with him and it will just be glory. And the last thing he does is he wipes away every tear from our eyes. The Bible tells us that God knows every single tear anyone in this room has ever cried. He knows the reasons. He knows why you've cried them. And there is a sense in heaven that he will take his huge God handkerchief and he'll wipe all of those tears away. Every pain, past hurt and suffering you've ever been through, he will wipe away with the swing of his arm. I don't know if that's exactly what will happen, but something like that. Ryan, you guys can come up. So what about the seventh seal? Because now we've done all of this, great. What about it? Does this actually happen? We are ending today. So the seventh seal definitely happens after the sixth seal. Unfortunately, in this particular section of Revelation, we're not given a lot of details. This is what it says about the seventh seal. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. Most Bibles start this in a new chapter, but this is actually part of the previous section, even though it starts in a new chapter. It says this, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. That's it. That's all we get. Silence. So the real question is, what could possibly happen after the destruction of the world 
that would cause the entirety of heaven, the saints, the elders, the angels, everyone, the living beings, to silence their voices so that not a peep has been heard. What could possibly be happening? Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20 gives us an indication. It says this, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The seventh seal, friends, is the final act of God's plan of redemption. It's God taking His seat on the judgment throne. The place where all of us and all the evil minions of this world, the devil himself, will be judged. And it's such a powerful moment that heaven keeps quiet. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, As just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now here's the good news. The enemy, Satan, our foe, his minions, the principalities, the powers, all of those evil heavenly beings and spiritual realms that are warring against us will be cast into the lake of fire. Never ever again will they bother us or have any part of our lives. Then all the unbelieving world will stand before the throne and they will be judged. And they'll be judged to an eternity in hell. I know it's not popular to talk about that anymore, but hey, there's judgment coming. If I don't tell you about that, maybe you won't have the, the desire to want to go and grab somebody off the cliff because we need to. That's our job. For those of us who are believers, we will be allowed to enter into eternal life. But here's the deal. Even believers are judged. We're not judged to be saved. We will be saved. Jesus did that for us. He bought that for us on the cross. But throughout Scripture, we know that there is a reward and an inheritance given to those who overcome. Remember, we dealt with the seven churches in the beginning, and I thought what I'd do just to close us off this morning is just read some of the promises that were given to these seven churches. These are promises and inheritances and rewards. There are crowns stored up in heaven for you and I today, things that God wants to give us in the eternity, and I can't explain it to you in its entirety. You cannot lose your salvation. Know that. But what we get because of what we've done with what God has given us will be a representation in heaven with the reward that we get. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus says this, to the one who conquers religion, to the one who conquers self-righteousness, I will grant to eat the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To the church in Smyrna, to the one who overcomes the sufferings of this world, you will not be hurt by the second death. To the church in Pergamum, to those that overcome compromise in their lives, I will give them some of the hidden manna, and I'll give them a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the church in Thyatira, the one who conquers division, idolatry, all of this other stuff, and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give them authority over the nations. And he will rule with them on a, with a rod of iron as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. To the church in Sardis, those who overcome being dead in their faith will be clothed thus in white garments, and I'll never blot out their names from the book of life. I'll confess his names before my Father and before his angels. To the church in Philadelphia, those who conquer and remain obedient, I will give, make them pillars in the temple of my God. Never shall they go out of it, and I'll write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down of, from my God out of heaven. And I will give them my own new name to the church in Laodicea, to the one who conquers a lukewarm Christianity. 
I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Those are worthy inheritances for us to receive. And so the reason we as a church want to become an overcoming church, we as people want to become overcomers, is because we get all of these things. But here's the deal. As worthy as all of those rewards will be in heaven, those crowns that we receive, do you know what we do with those crowns in heaven? We cast them at the feet of Jesus. And so we overcome as a church. Not so that we want to receive much, but because Jesus is worthy of it all. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our suffering. He's worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of our effort. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our talents. He's worthy of our treasure. He's worthy of our lives. And so we celebrate Him by overcoming all of the things that the world throws at us. And we suffer well as His church because one day we will never suffer again. I ask you to stand up. I want to just close quickly in prayer. We're going to sing one last song. And this song is a declaration of what I've just said. The words of this song say that Jesus is worthy of it all. Can I ask you that while we're singing, that you would cry these words out from the bottom of your heart. Turn your eyes towards Jesus this morning. If anyone needs prayer, maybe you've struggled to overcome. Maybe there's something in your life you need to overcome today. Maybe it's something that's been holding you back and you need prayer. I will be up here in the front. Tim will be up there in the front. We'll have a prayer team at the back there. They're wearing name tags. If not, just they'll put their hands up now and you can just go to them and they'll pray for you. But please, if you need us to lay hands on you and pray with you, we're here to do that. But if not, stand in your seat and worship the one who is worthy of it all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We declare this morning that you alone are worthy of our praise. We love you, Jesus. We worship you, Lord. And we pray that the cry of this church, Lord, would be one that overcomes the difficulties, the frustrations that we deal with, the issues that we go through, all of these things that the world throws at us. Lord, I pray that we would be an overcoming church and we would lead others in this city and in this nation to overcome, just as we've overcome because you overcame first. And I love you, Lord. We love you and we declare this truth.